short time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this. The American people, I think, is good people. They are. They have not to charge with the guilty of all the lies. Episode 155, uh, special edition. My guest today is Archie Brown. Now, you've heard me talk about Archie Brown before. Big fan of Archie Brown. Uh, read a number of his books over the years on the history of communism. He is a British political scientist and historian, uh, the Emeritus Professor of Politics at the University of Oxford, and an Emeritus Fellow at St. Anthony's College, Oxford. And he's one of the world's leading experts on Soviet and Russian politics, the Cold War, communist politics, etc. Great book he wrote uh, back in the 2000s called The Rise and Fall of Communism, which I highly recommend. He wrote a book in the mid-90s called The Gorbachev Factor. And he's got a new book out, The Human Factor, which talks about the end of the Cold War, so skipping a little bit ahead in our timeline, probably 20 years ahead, (laughs) the rate we're going at, we're talking about what happened in the uh, late 80s, early 90s to end the Cold War. Now, I I didn't get into it with him about, well, did the Cold War really end, etc., etc., not the time nor the place. I would have loved to have talked to him about Stalin and uh, all of that kind of stuff too, but he made it clear in our email conversations that he really wanted to talk about the new book and, and not delve into all of that kind of stuff, which is fair enough. Archie's in his uh, 80s and, uh, you know, he uh, doesn't have time to, to talk to some young pup like me about all the nerdy stuff that I would get into. He's, he's promoting his book. Anyway, um, I really, you'll be able to tell on this, I I really, really enjoyed talking to Archie, and uh, I hope you enjoy it too. Here it is. Archie, this is Cameron Riley. Oh yes, hello. How are you, sir? Okay, thanks, still surviving, no coronavirus so far. (laughs) I'm so glad to hear it. Yeah, uh, you okay? I'm very well, thank you, sir, and it's it's an honour and a privilege to talk to you. It's a pleasure. So let's uh, talk about your latest book, The Human Factor. Now, um, I was 21 years old when the uh, Cold War ended. And uh, along with most people my age, I was led to understand that the reason it ended was primarily because Ronald Reagan gave his tear down this wall speech uh, in Berlin and the Soviets were so incredibly embarrassed 
uh, as a result of that speech that they just gave up and ended the Cold War. Um, and I'm sure most of our American listeners would believe that that's uh, fairly close to the story. Your book uh, takes issue with that. Yes, uh, I think that is quite a widespread view, um, perhaps especially in the United States. But um, um, I think it's also almost completely wrong that, um, in fact, um, Reagan's speech um, in Berlin, tear Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall, uh, would have made it harder for Gorbachev to um, get the wall torn down. And in fact, two weeks earlier, he and the Soviet foreign minister, Shevardnadze, had been in East Germany, and they'd encouraged the East German leadership to dismantle the wall, but Honecker, the East German leader, would have none of it. In fact, by that time, Gorbachev um, was not trying to um, dictate policy in any way to the East Europeans. Um, he was letting them to get settle matters for themselves. And similarly, a year later, when the East European peoples took Gorbachev at his word, and because in a speech in the United Nations in 1988, he said the people of every country had the right to decide for themselves what kind of system, political and economic, they wish to live under. Following year, people in Eastern Europe tested that hypothesis and found that Gorbachev meant what he said. So, <clears throat> excuse me. The, um, in fact, you know, Gorbachev was the was the crucial person in the end of the Cold War. When his predecessor Chernyenko died in March 1985, the next leader had to be chosen from the ten full members of the Politburo who were still standing. A lot of them were pretty old and only just standing. Um, <laughs> and uh, we know the views and mindsets of all ten. And, you know, I can absolutely assure you that the only one who would have pursued the kind of policies that Gorbachev did was Gorbachev. So how did he end up as general secretary then? It, it seems in retrospect quite an improbable turn of events. It was in many ways an improbable turn of events. And um, he wasn't chosen because he was a soft liner, as again, some people imagine. Um, he was chosen because he <clears throat> was very skillful at intra-party maneuvering. He was very able, very hard-working. He had impressed Andropov. Um, Andropov you know, became leader before Chernyenko, and he accelerated Gorbachev's promotion within the top leadership team. And so when Andropov died and Chernyenko became the leader, um, Gorbachev then moved into the position of second secretary, the, uh, even though there were people in the old guard who would have liked to have stopped his ascent, um, he was sufficiently entrenched within the central committee uh, machine that by that time that he was able to get the number two position. And when Chernenko died, I mean, he himself, in a way, seized the throne. Uh, he convened a meeting of the Politburo the very evening in which Chernenko died, took the chair and was elected um, chair of Chernyenko's funeral commission. Well, Sovietologists um, like myself um, you know, knew that in the last three occasions when somebody died, the person who was chair of the funeral commission was the person who became the next leader. And within 24 hours, he was Soviet leader. So it wasn't as if you know he was um, chosen by the Soviet bureaucracy. In a sense, you know, he he seized the opportunity. <laughs> that reminds me of 
sort of a tradition in ancient Macedon when the Macedonian king died, whoever supervised the funeral was next in line to be king. Uh-huh. wonder if the Soviets adopted that from Alexander the Great. <clears throat> so, yes. so let's talk about um, Gorbachev as, as a good place to kick it off. Uh, your book, you talk about he had a very humble beginning uh came came out of a family of poor peasants his grandfathers had been arrested during stalin's terror um he, he, again he seems like an unlikely person to end up running the soviet government yes that's true the um of course many people um had relatives arrested in the 1930s but it wasn't exactly accommodation if you wanted to um you know make your career within the soviet communist party hierarchy uh, Gorbachev, both the grandfathers were arrested at different times in the 30s um, uh, on trumped-up charges, as most people in those days who were um, arrested were. Um, but um, he had some compensating factors, and uh, he he was a very bright student. Um, he was active in the Komsomol, the Young Communist League. But above all, he, when his father returned from the war, his father had been fighting at the front, he, Gorbachev helped them in a combine harvester every summer, and uh, they produced a record harvest in, in their area, the two of them working together, and were given state awards. Um, the father was given the Order of Lenin, Gorbachev was given the Order of Red Banner of Labor at the age of, at the age of 17. Now, I know people who were at university in Moscow with Gorbachev and said, you know, some of the older students um, who'd fought in the war, who you know, wore the red banner, but Gorbachev was the only younger student who had been too young to fight in the war, um, who had this red banner of labor, which he sometimes wore on his lapel. So, you know, having been an exemplary worker, as well as a very bright student, got a silver medal at school, um, you know, that helped him to get into Moscow University Law Faculty, which is a pretty unusual thing because it's the best university was regarded at the time as the best university in the country. And, you know, somebody from a peasant family in southern Russia had very high odds stacked against him for getting there. And, of course, you know, without the revolution, that would have been absolutely impossible. That's true. And so this is why Gorbachev, for a long time, was an exemplary party member in the sense that he thought, you know, the party had provided people like him with the opportunity to um, fulfill their uh, talents and abilities to the full. And so, you know, he sincerely believed in the, the system and, of course, he thought it could be improved. Um, and uh, he didn't blame Stalin personally for the rest of his grandfathers, in common with many people who um, had relatives arrested or killed. Um, and it was only when Nikita Khrushchev in 1956 made his famous so-called secret speech that didn't remain secret for long and uh, detailed the crimes of Stalin and showed the extent to which Stalin personally had orchestrated the great purges. It was only then that people like Gorbachev and others who had lost family members realised Stalin's culpability. So... Gorbachev was born in 31. He would have been in his, he would have been 22, 21, 22 when Stalin died. So he's 
old enough to be uh, aware of what was going on at some level. Obviously, already had um, received some attention. Uh, what was his attitude towards Stalin later on in life? Do you know? Oh, from the time, certainly, of Khrushchev's speech, um, he was an anti-Stalinist. And uh, the, I mean, I knew somebody who was his best friend at Moscow University, a man who was a Czech, a young Czech communist who was very active in the Prague Spring in 1968. He was in the leadership and, uh, you know, was very influential, along with Dubček, in some ways more influential on the policies adopted than Dubček, a man called Stanyak Minard. And he was Gorbachev's best friend when they studied together in the law faculty of Moscow University between 1950 and 55. And in a conversation I had with Minard in June 1979, long before Gorbachev was Soviet leader, he described Gorbachev to me as um, an anti-Stalinist, intelligent, and a person with an open mind. And so from that time onwards, I took a special interest in Gorbachev. So when... My understanding from reading your book is that Gorbachev, um, obviously very intelligent, and his his views evolved over time. What was it, do you think, that got him to the point where he started to think the USSR needed to be opened up to uh, more democracy and, and more freedom? What, what, what led him to that conclusion? I think his um, foreign visits had an impact on him. Even in the 1970s, he visited Italy, France, um, West Germany, and uh, then in 1984, he was um, in Britain. He also he was also in Canada, um, and uh, you know he obviously saw the higher standard of living in North America and in. Uh, Western Europe, but I think he was, there's no doubt, he was also impressed by the freedom of discussion. I mean, in his memoirs, he comments on the fact that when he went abroad in a Soviet delegation, all, they all had to be very careful to say the same thing and tour the party line, and he, he noticed how the way in which Westerners would uh, contradict each other and argue among themselves you know, in discussion with a Soviet group. And uh, he was simply impressed by that. Also, when he went to the funeral of the Italian communist leader Enrico Berlinguer, you know, the Italian president was there and various dignitaries of the Italian state and, uh, you know, bowed before the coffin. And Gorbachev said, you know, this was an example of a different political culture, you know, very different from ours. But clearly it was a political culture which appealed to him. Hmm. And so you say that by the time well, when he became general secretary, the, the authority, the power of the general secretary was such that he had the ability to push through reforms, which you know, it was to a large degree unimpeded. The combination of the authority and his ability as a, as a politician but if I understand correctly, Western observers didn't really see it coming. Is that correct? It was a big surprise to people in the West at the time? There was argument among observers of the Soviet Union at the time, you know, between people who thought that you know, significant change might be beginning to take place and those who thought it's all cosmetic and nothing fundamental can change. Um, and, of course, it became more radical with each successive year. I mean, Gorbachev had to tread carefully because when he was 
first of all, General Secretary. Then the other members of the Politburo were um, <clears throat> not people he had chosen. And um, he, he got rid in 1985 of several of the old guard, um, Grecian and Romanov. But um, he only gradually could he change the composition. And even then, he never had a Politburo that had a majority of radical reformers. So he had to maneuver. Um, but um, he was very persuasive, and uh, he, he wasn't a dictator. Sometimes the Politburo would be resistant to proposals he put forward, and he would say, well, we need to think about this a bit more. And he would influence some exercise influence behind the scenes, persuade one or two people, bring it back to the Politburo a few weeks later, and then get their collective um, agreement for it. And that was quite important because, you know, once they'd accepted collective responsibility for the new policy, it was harder for them to blame everything on Gorbachev, though, of course, later some of them did. Mm. Well, let's let's move on to the other two major characters in your book, Reagan and Thatcher. Uh, let's start with Reagan. As I said at the beginning, you know, I think um, in the popular consciousness, there is this view that the Americans won the Cold War and they defeated the Soviet Union through a combination of superior military threats and uh, and economic superiority. What role do you believe Ronald Reagan played in the events that occurred in the late 80s, early 90s? Reagan was a mixed blessing for Gorbachev. Um, he with his obsession with um, anti-missile defense and SDI, so-called Star Wars Strategic Defense Initiative, um, he was really making it harder for Gorbachev because the military-industrial complex regarded um, this as the United States seeking a first-strike um, capability against the Soviet Union. Uh, and the obvious answer to any attempt to build um, a defensive system uh, against uh, incoming missiles was to um, greatly increase the number of missiles and uh, that you would have some with multiple warheads, some would carry nuclear uh, warheads and some would be dummies, but making the already almost impossible task of anti-missile defense, you know, really impossible. But this meant an acceleration of the arms race and Gorbachev was uh, determined to avoid that. He wanted to bring the arms race to an end. Um, so he had a real struggle with his own military-industrial complex. So that aspect of Reagan's policy, the defense build-up, the uh, anti-Soviet rhetoric, calling the Soviet Union in 1983 an evil empire, and especially his um, strategic defense initiative, SDI, um, that made things <clears throat> very difficult for Gorbachev. However, Reagan also had a real hatred of nuclear weapons, Whereas Margaret Thatcher really believed in nuclear weapons as a great deterrent, um, Reagan wanted to rid the world of nuclear weapons. And so he was a kind of big picture person. And in that respect, you know, he was able to strike a chord sometimes with Gorbachev. And he was ready to engage. That was important. Um, he, there were people in the American administration who thought there's no point in speaking with a Soviet leader. They'll never change. And, um, you know, they discouraged uh, him from doing so. 
but once George Shultz, it wasn't just Reagan, of course, <clears throat> once George Shultz became Secretary of State, he was a considerable influence on Reagan, and he was somebody who did believe in dialogue with the Soviet Union, uh, and the two of them, you know, proceeded to engage in that dialogue. And without it, of course, the Cold War couldn't have come to an end. So I would say that Gorbachev was the more crucial person by far, but he did need the president of the United States who would engage with him. I did like the part of your book where you were talking about Reagan's conservative, hardline, anti-Soviet credentials almost gave him uh, permission to be able to sit down and talk with Gorbachev. If he had been perceived to be soft on the Soviet Union or soft on Russia, he, he may have copped more flack stateside. It reminds me of the part of our show we've talked about in a lot of detail over the last couple of years when Truman became president and uh, had to build up his... Uh, his credibility as not being soft on Russia after Yalta and the end of the war, etc., etc., he had to almost double down in terms of his uh, rhetoric, which seemed to have put Stalin and Molotov uh, uh, offside and fractured the relationship even further than it was already struggling. But Reagan uh, managed to get away with it because he was already seen to be such an anti-Soviet uh, leader. That's true. That's one of the respects in which he was useful for Gorbachev because a liberal Republican and still more a liberal Democrat in Washington would have had a much harder time at home um, and would have been seen to be selling out. And, and even Reagan was accused by some people of having gone soft in communism or have been charm, charmed into gullibility by Gorbachev. But, you know, those accusations didn't have much resonance with the American population because, you know, Reagan's anti-communist, anti-Soviet credentials had been built up over many years. Yeah, it reminds me that, you know, how uh, Roosevelt was attacked posthumously as well for having been hoodwinked by Stalin at Yalta when, um, you know, I think it, he, it, he's been done a great disservice. I think he was uh, crucial in um, keeping the alliance together. Yes, that's true. And, and even Truman, as you mentioned earlier, was initially um, uh, rather fond of Stalin. I mean, he, one of his letters or diaries, I think it was, he, he wrote, you know, he wasn't sure what would happen if Joe should pass out. You know, he wasn't, he didn't think that... Um, Molotov or other potential successors were as sincere as Joe was, mm. and that was Stalin. Mm. Um, but later, later, of course, um, you know, he, he he changed his mind very radically. But um, yes, Stalin was capable of um, charming people at times. Even Churchill, who was a lifelong <laughs> anti-communist, um, you know, got rather a soft spot for Stalin at various points during the war. Though again, he very rapidly reverted to his earlier position immediately after the war when he saw the way in which the Soviet Union was expanding uh, across Eastern Europe through their influence and power. <laughs> well, yes, but uh, slightly hypocritical for the man who didn't want to see the uh, British Empire broken up under his... Uh under his stewardship to complain about uh, somebody else building an economic block, don't you think? 
<laughs> well, yeah, Churchill certainly was an old imperialist, yes. But um, the, the, the well, we, we, well, it's a different subject to start comparing the British Empire <laughs> and the Soviet one. But uh, that's for another discussion, another day, I think. Uh, fair enough. So, okay, uh, so Reagan's abrasive uh, a, a, a rhetoric not really uh, useful. In fact, perhaps a hindrance. But his willingness. And his uh, political credibility that enabled him to sit down and talk about uh, scaling back the nuclear stalemate was useful. Let's talk about Margaret Thatcher. What role do you think she really played in uh, the end of the Cold War? In some ways, her role is the most surprising because the disparity between British um, military power and that of the Soviet Union and the United States was very great. But her influence arose in the first place because she was far and away Ronald Reagan's favorite foreign leader. And he referred to her on several occasions as his soulmate, uh, <laughs> political and ideological soulmate. They really saw eye to eye on economic policy. They didn't like state interference in the economy. I mean, sometimes the state became quite powerful under them, actually, but um, in principle, they were against um, state regulation and believed in the free market and so forth, and were both lifelong anti-communist, hardline anti-Soviet, and believed in military build-up. So they saw eye-to-eye in a whole lot of uh, areas. And also, while many people were put off by Margaret Thatcher's style of speech, um, Reagan saw her as a kind of exemplary um, exponent of views that he himself held but couldn't articulate as clearly when he didn't have a script. Um, so um, that, that, that was a source of her, in, her influence. As long as Reagan was in the White House, she had a lot of clout in Washington. And she had good relations with both Schultz, the Secretary of State, and Weinberger, the Defense Secretary, who didn't get on with each other. Um, and she was regarded as a hardliner. So when she was in favor of um, engagement with Gorbachev, and when she said that Gorbachev was a different kind of Soviet leader from any we've ever seen, um, this, this had undoubted influence. And then the still more surprising part of it is that she established a very good relationship with Gorbachev. Mm. Three months before Gorbachev became a Soviet leader, he came to Britain for a week-long visit, which was a great success. And he and Margaret Thatcher had a long discussion at the Prime Minister's country home, Chequers. They argued a lot, but nevertheless, they got on well. And at the end of that, she famously said, I like Mr. Gorbachev, we can do business together. And almost immediately after, she went off to see Reagan and Schultz and, uh, in the United States at Camp David uh, meeting and, you know, repeated her very favorable impression of Gorbachev. So, and then with Gorbachev, she met him more often than even Churchill during the war met Stalin. Um, no British prime minister has ever had as many meetings with an American president or with a Soviet leader as Margaret Thatcher had. And the relationship became warmer with each year with Gorbachev, started with mutual respect and finished up as, finished up as friends. Um, so that, that, that really was rather surprising, but she did play a considerable role. Mm. Fascinating. So let's. Uh, so we get through to the... Um 
they're getting towards the end of it. I, uh, one of the things that I've always been fascinated with is the the not one inch promise that was made uh, regarding uh, the expansion of NATO should uh, the, the Soviet Union agree to uh, let go of Germany. Now, you, you say in the book that it was kind of something that was breezed over in discussions. Yes, nobody was thinking at that time about NATO expansion, really. The, um, the, so Gorbachev eventually agreed to that United Germany could be in NATO. But, um, uh, I mean, the relationship was so good at that time between the United States and the Soviet Union and between uh, George Bush and uh, Gorbachev at that time, Bush the elder, um, that um, I, I don't think either of them were seriously contemplating exp- expansion of NATO. And in the back of Gorbachev's mind, uh, after, especially after the Warsaw Pact um, ceased to exist, um, I'm sure he was thinking that NATO has got no purpose anymore. It was set up to combat Soviet communism. Um, before long, there was no Soviet Union already. By that time, there was little left of communism. Um, and uh, the East European countries had become non-communist and independent. So, you know, what purpose could there be for NATO? Still less, you know, an expanded NATO. So I think that uh, these promises were given, but um, the, it wasn't a big issue at the time. It became a big issue later when NATO did indeed expand. Uh, and then people could say, well, you know, uh, to the extent it was a promise, it was made to a, a leader of a country that no longer exists, the Soviet Union. <laughs> um, but um, I still think, you know, one could say that um, that was a bit dishonest. Though, though at the time, I'm sure that the promises were made in good faith by people like James Baker, the American Secretary of State, when he said, you know, there'd be no further expansion of NATO. That was his intention at the time. So it was successive American administrations that uh, reneged on the, at least the spirit of that deal, even if they found they ways to talk, talk, talk their way around it. They did, yes. Um, I mean, within the Clinton administration, there were people who were reluctant to see this happen. The specialist within that administration on the Soviet Union, Strobe Talbot, was not very keen on um, NATO expansion. And Bill Perry, the uh, defense secretary, thought it was a thoroughly bad idea. Um, uh, But the East Europeans were pressing very hard for it. And uh, so one by one they they were admitted and then finally we've got former republics of the Soviet Union Estonia, Latvia, uh, Lithuania in the first instance joining NATO so for Russians this was a real blow first of all countries that had been their subordinates and allies joined what had always been a hostile military alliance and then people who had been part of their country the same country uh, the former republics of the Soviet Union, they started joining NATO. So it's not surprising that over the years this became more and more of a sensitive issue, to say the least, uh, within Russia. Mm. So uh, Donald Trump seems to be keen to disband NATO. Do you think it's a, a good idea or a bad <clears throat> idea? Well, the 
I mean, you could argue this is the wrong time. The, 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 you can't rewrite history, but um, there was a great opportunity at the end of the Cold War to build on something like the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, OSCE, as um, a new security organization that would embrace the whole of Europe and the United States and Canada because they were part of that. Um, and uh, this would uh, have avoided the kind of division between Russia and the West and indeed between Russia and Ukraine, which we see now. Um, so um, there is an argument that you know, NATO fulfilled its historic purpose and what is its purpose today? It's not entirely clear. Um, but um, I would hesitate to endorse any policy of Donald Trump. <laughs> Fair enough, too. <laughs> Particularly on record, uh, you wouldn't want to do that. So um, let's talk about uh, what, <laughs> what went wrong. So my understanding has always been that Gorbachev never really intended to see the uh, Soviet uh, Union disbanded and broken up. He thought he would be able to hold it together, just provide more democracy and more freedom. Is, is, am I right in thinking that? Yes, you are. And uh, there are many things that Gorbachev didn't really... Uh, intend in 1985, uh, but some of them he certainly did intend as the years went on because, you know, I mentioned earlier that he had an open mind and that open mind was crucial. He continued to develop his ideas while he was the General Secretary of the Soviet Communist Party and uh, he began in 1985 as a communist reformer. By 1985, sorry, by 1988, he had come to the conclusion that the system was beyond reform and needed to be much more comprehensively transformed. And he became a systemic reformer. And he introduced competitive elections for a legislature with real power. And that met for the first time in 1989. So those things he did intend, and they changed the nature of the system. But once you had given people um, <clears throat> the opportunity to throw out their... Um, uh, local leaders and then the Baltic republics, for example, you know, people who were chairman of the Council of Ministers in Estonia or Latvia or Lithuania, they were not elected to this legislature and people used the new opportunities to <clears throat> express their national grievances. And grievances that had been suppressed, all kinds of grievances, for 70 years came to the surface of political life, and not least the various national discontents. So the national, the threat to the national unity of the country, um, that was very much an unintended consequence of Gorbachev's fundamental political changes. And he did not want to see the Soviet Union break up. So there's a big distinction between ending the Cold War that Gorbachev wanted um, uh, transforming the Soviet political system, certainly he wanted to do that. Um, but the breakup of the Soviet Union was something he was seeking to avoid, and he hoped to do it by getting the various components of the Federation to agree to a new genuine Federation with a lot of powers devolved to the republics 
instead of the pseudo federation that had been the, the Soviet Union up to that point. And he made a certain amount of progress with that, and a number of the republics, including the biggest, um, Russia and Ukraine, had signed up to it. Um, but there was a series of union draft union treaties, and each one devolved more and more power to the republics. And in the last two years, Gorbachev was losing authority at home, and Yeltsin's popularity was uh, being enhanced. It was in May, June 1990 that, according to the best public opinion polls, Yeltsin overtook Gorbachev as the most popular politician in the country, and that continued to accelerate. So um, a combination of Yeltsin playing the Russian card against the Union, saying that Russian law had supremacy over Soviet law, um, and then finally the coup against Gorbachev in August 1991, that really finished the Union off. But um, there's no doubt that Gorbachev was deeply disappointed by the breakup of the Soviet Union. And did he remain a socialist at that stage? Was he just like a Deng Xiaoping trying to reform socialism in the country, or had he uh, given up on socialism as being viable? The it's, it's an interesting question because um, he he did consider himself to be a socialist throughout, but he fundamentally redefined what he meant by socialism. Um, and I think a lot of um, observers fail to understand Gorbachev, especially those who say that he never changed because he's, you know, he always remained a socialist. Um, you know, the term socialist can cover a great many different political outlooks. And people who were members of the Soviet Communist Party, they called themselves socialists. Um, and Gorbachev, as I mentioned, began as a communist reformer, but still recognizably a socialist in the Soviet sense. But um, in the course of his time of less than seven years in the Kremlin, um, he evolved into a socialist of a West European type, you know, like um, uh, Willy Brandt in Germany or Labour Party in Britain. Um, and actually his favorite uh, foreign leader was not Reagan or Thatcher, it was Felipe González, the Spanish Socialist um, Prime Minister. And it wasn't the Spanish Communist Party, which was you know, not, not, wasn't such a small party, it wasn't the Communist Party in Spain, which was actually quite revisionist under Carrillo, but uh, the Spanish Socialist Prime Minister with whom he had long conversations on the meaning of socialism. And so, you know, he believed in the kind of democratic socialism that people like Clement Attlee did in the Labour Party, traditionally in Britain. Um, political democracy, freedom, um, welfare state, um, certain amount of public ownership. But, you know, he could have fitted perfectly into a West European democratic socialist party by the end. So in that sense, he remained a socialist, but when you use the word remain, it disguises or um, uh, it really obscures the extent to which his political evolution uh, continued and uh, just how much his real political outlook changed. Sounds like he would have made a good Menshevik. Yeah, he was probably um, the, to the right of the Mensheviks, latterly, the, the, the Mensheviks were perhaps more thoroughgoing socialists than, than Gorbachev was, latterly. He was more of a social democrat, latterly. Mm. 
What was his relationship with Deng, Deng Xiaoping like? Did he have uh, much contact with him? They were both sort of uh, reforming their countries in somewhat slightly different ways. The only time they met was in 1989 when uh, Gorbachev went to China. And, of course, there were demonstrations in Tiananmen Square at that time. People (laughs) were encouraged Mm. by what was happening in the Soviet Union. Mm. He certainly respected uh, Deng Xiaoping's economic reforms and uh, his anti-Maoist policies. But but Deng Xiaoping remained um, a Leninist in in a way, um, believing in firm party control uh, in a way that uh, Gorbachev did not. I mean, Gorbachev had a, had a kind of historic esteem for Lenin personally, but he basically ceased to be a Leninist, um, and as I said, evolved into a social democrat. So, but they didn't argue about that. But um, when they met, um, I mean, Gorbachev was very keen to restore or reestablish the relationship with China, which had been very bad with, between China and the Soviet Union for many years. So he was pleased to meet with um, uh, Deng Xiaoping, and he kept away from the demonstrators. The demonstrators were quite keen on Gorbachev, uh, but um, he knew that it was an extremely sensitive issue for the Chinese leadership, and given that he'd gone there in order to uh, improve the Sino-Soviet relationship, he couldn't go and mix with the demonstrators. so I think was I know what we also know from his conversations with the French person Mitterrand and uh, Helmut Kohl, he thoroughly disapproved of the brutal crackdown in Tiananmen Square, which put an end to the protests. Um, but again, he didn't condemn it um, very um, overtly in public because he didn't want to spoil the new developing relationship, re-established relationship with China. Hmm. So let's talk about how uh, Gorbachev is perceived in Russia today. Is he admired, revered, or do people uh, regret his actions? On the whole, people take a very dim view of Gorbachev. Now um, he tends to be criticised. He's regarded as somebody who is weak. He's blamed by Russians above all for the breakup of the Soviet Union. Uh, Now, there is a minority who esteem him very highly, a minority in Russia who value what he did, but the majority do not. And that's partly because of the way he's been treated in the the media over the years since then. It's become probably a bit easier to praise Stalin in the Soviet, sorry, the Russian mass media than it has to praise Gorbachev. it's, um, I mean, even Russia, Russia today is nothing like as um, authoritarian as the pre-Perestroika Soviet Union. So Gorbachev can publish books in Russia, and there can be books published which are sympathetic to him, but they've got small circulations. The media which are most influential, especially television, um, they would be almost unif- uniformly hostile to Gorbachev. Um, so, you know, they, they feel that, um, in a sense, the Soviet Union lost the Cold War and that Gorbachev um, uh, sold them down the river and they blame him for the breakup of the Soviet Union. Now, I think, you know, anyone who reads my book, would, I think, would, would find that that was a huge oversimplification, to put it mildly, but um, that is the prevailing view.
Mm. And I, I, I assume that he doesn't have much of a relationship with Vladimir Putin? No, no, he doesn't. Um, uh, it's even less with Yeltsin. He was not invited to the Kremlin even once all the time that um, Yeltsin was leader. I think he's been there maybe once or twice, but not at all in recent years when Putin was there. And finally, do you have any idea what Gorbachev's view is of Russia today? He's in his late 80s, I think. Does he, uh, is he proud of what he did or does he regret his actions? He, he doesn't regret his actions. Um, he thinks that um, not only Russia, but the world in general is not built on the foundations that were laid by the end of the 1980s when there was a possibility of having a qualitatively new um, international relationship. I mean, no NATO, no Warsaw Pact, a new um, security organization. Um, he is extremely concerned by the fact that um, the uh, successful attempts to cut the number of nuclear weapons which were <clears throat> achieved between Reagan and Gorbachev and Bush and Gorbachev are now being lost. Uh, I mean, already in 2001, the George W. Bush administration um, uh, abrogated one of the treaties, and last year another um, was lost. So um, the what's happening in uh, arms build-up again worries him a lot. He's also extremely unhappy about the fact that Russia has become more authoritarian than it was in the last years of the Soviet Union not as authoritarian as it was in the pre-Perestroika days, but still um, there was a much more vibrant political life and much more criticism in Parliament and in the mass media, for example, in the last years of the Soviet Union than in contemporary Russia. So there's a lot that's happened since which um, he doesn't approve of at all. Um, but he doesn't have any regrets about um, his role in ending the Cold War, nor his role in making Russia a freer country than it's ever been um, in a thousand years. Hmm. Well, uh, just to, to sum up your thoughts, are there lessons to be learnt from this story, the human fact, uh, Archie? I think there are, yes. The... I mean, many of the things which um, Gorbachev was trying to do still need to be done. I mean, he was actually one of the people who was concerned long before most politicians about uh, environmental issues. He was a very green politician, more green than red in a way. And uh, he's been extremely concerned about environmental degrada degradation and climate change. Uh, and, but I think one of the lessons is that you need to have engagement that um, it's never been the case that isolation of Russia has made it a more liberal or a more democratic country. And one of the things which brought about change in the Soviet Union was a certain amount of um, uh, contact between party intellectuals in, in Russia and, and even people who are high, in the high, high up in the hierarchy like Gorbachev or one of his closest associates at that time, Alexander Yakovlev, who'd seen a lot of the West and who became more dissatisfied with their own system, the more they saw of a developed Western democracy. 
So um, I, I, there are people who think, well, Russia now has gone backwards, and you know, the less you have to do with them, the better. Now, that's a big mistake because um, uh, you must engage uh, if you want to exert any influence. Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, you know, uh, without wanting to sound like either of us uh, admire or support Donald Trump's presidency, he at least seems to be willing to engage with Kim and Putin and other leaders. He cops a lot of criticism for it, but I do think it makes more sense to sit down at the table and have discussions with these people than just to shut them out and treat them as uh, verboten. Yes, I think in the case of Kim, uh, I mean, Trump probably was deluded that, uh, I mean, he was getting really nothing in return. I mean, Trump is so ignorant and so full of himself that um, he um, he could make a very bad deal. So, uh, again, I would hate to have Trump as the kind of um, exemplar of the policy that uh, I I'm advocating, uh, but it is true that in the case of Russia, that um, it's unfortunate that the Democrats, you know, have concentrated so much power on him for wanting to have a better relationship with Russia, because there's a lot to be said for the United States having a better relationship with Russia, and there are a great many things that one can attack Trump over uh, rather than that. Now, it may well be that he wants a better relationship for the wrong reasons, um, mm -hmm. and uh, many of the things that Trump wants are for the wrong reasons, so that, that's the problem. But um, I think that um, uh, better relations with Russia are desirable, even if Trump also wants them. <laughs> As you say, I'm, I'm pretty sure it has more to do with uh, Trump hotels in Moscow um, than any any other overarching big vision. That but, seems uh, entirely plausible, yeah. <laughs> but uh, do you have any thoughts on why the Democrats have demonised the uh, his relationship with Russia? It, as a, as a Cold War nerd, it always strikes me that they're just rehashing old McCarthyism. It's uh, I, I found the whole uh, Russiagate uh, narrative over the last few years to be uh, ridiculous and laughable. Well, I think there is an element of conditioned reflex there, but um, the, the they think it's a very vulnerable spot of um, Trump's. I mean, they thought that. I mean, now, in fact, the way he's treated the coronavirus should make a much more mm. uh, obvious point of vulnerability for him because, you know, if you just go over all these statements there, they've been absolutely absurd. And, you know, was, first of all, it was just a minor thing, nothing, something that the Democrats had made up, more or less. Mm -hmm. But um, And then now we've got more people dying in the United States than anywhere else. But um, the... Uh, so perhaps that will get the Democrats off their obsession with Trump and Russia mm. because it was becoming a bit obsessive. Mm. Well, Archie, as uh, as you know, I've said to you in, in our email discussions prior to this, I'm a, a huge fan of your work. I would love to sit and talk to you for hours about uh, Soviet history, but uh, I appreciate your new book very much. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you for taking the time to write it for those of us that have a, an interest in the history of the period, and thank you for coming on and chatting with us this morning. Thank you very much. 
Alright sir, that's it. Um, you happy with that? An iron curtain has descended across the continent. Soviet military buildup on the island of Cuba. The purpose of these bases can be none other than to provide a nuclear strike capability against the Western Hemisphere.